Welcome to the WGN Radio Theater, program 471 in the series. It's May 30th, 2020. I'm your host, Carl Amari. Lisa Wolf is here as well. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Where else would I be? I hope I, nowhere I but here. There's nowhere I'd rather be, but right here, uh, playing some classic radio with you on WGN. We'll be here till 3 o'clock in the morning. And we have a new format, eight classic radio shows each and every week. And uh, this show has Sam Spade starring Howard Duff. We'll tune into My Friend Irma. We'll hear Crime Classics, Broadway Is My Beat, The Great Gildersleeve, The Cisco Kid, Gunsmoke, and Vic and Sade. And you know what, Lisa? If you have some fine jewelry that you don't wear anymore, you know where to sell it. Burdeen's. You want to call my good friend Matt Burdeen at 1-800-875-4418 and mention this radio offer, and he will give you a free appraisal on that fine jewelry. Now, I have been sending my family and my friends to see Matt Burdeen at Burdeen Jewelers, and I got to tell you, they're all happy on how much money Matt paid for their fine jewelry. And I know you revitalized some of your jewelry, right? I did. I sort of updated some uh, pieces that I had inherited that I didn't feel was my style. And now it's more beautiful than ever. And I wear it and appreciate it. So I appreciate that you let me in on your little Matt Burdeen secret. That's right. Now, not only does Matt Burdeen revitalize old jewelry into new, fresh, beautiful jewelry pieces, but he'll buy your fine jewelry or you can go to his website and peruse all the amazing pieces of jewelry that Matt has on display. You can go to Burdeen's, B-U-R-D-E-E-N-S.com. That's his website, Burdeen's.com, or call Matt and tell him about this radio offer. He'll give you a free appraisal on your fine jewelry. Get some cold, hard cash for that jewelry that you don't wear anymore. 1-800-875-4418. And the website again, B-U-R-D-E-E-N-S dot com. When we come back from the break, it's the adventures of Sam Spade. Stick around. Hour one of the WGN Radio Theater. Lisa and I are here every Saturday night from 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning, bringing you the greatest old-time radio shows of all time. Texting and driving is very serious. Remember, safe driving is everyone's responsibility. Put the phone down and don't text and drive. This message, courtesy of Blaine's Automotive, located at 11917 South Arrow Drive in Plainfield. For the best in automobile service, stop by 11917 South Arrow Drive in Plainfield or call 630-877-0097. That's 630-877-0097. That's Blaine's Automotive. Automotive on the air reminding everyone to arrive alive, don't text and drive. You know, Sam Spade would tell everybody that if he was around right I now. I would tell know. everybody that, and yep. I am around. That's right. <laughs> Sam Spade, detective. That's what we have for you now. Now, this detective character was created by Dashiell Hammett for the Maltese Falcon. He was a very hard-boiled and cold, detached detective. He had a keen eye for detail. 
and he was determined to achieve his own justice. Humphrey Bogart played Sam Spade in the 1941 film, which led to this 1946 radio series, which was produced by William Spear. Newcomer Howard Duff starred as Sam Spade, with Lorreen Tuttle as Spade's secretary, Effie Perrine. And we have a broadcast for you now from July 18, 1948, called The Missing News Hawk Caper. Here's Howard Duff, uninterrupted in The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective, brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic, the non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin. Wild Root Cream Oil, again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Bernadine, anything wrong? You sound almost human. It's not Bernadine, Sam. It's me, Effie. Eff! But I'll tell Bernadine about your compliment. How are things? Well, uh, I've made out as best I could. I don't want to, don't want you to think that I begrudged you a vacation. After all, you have worked hard. You, uh, did deserve it. Sam Spade, is that all you have to say to me? I'm not putting the blame on you. After all, it is a state law, so I can hardly accuse you of letting me down at a time when I needed you most. You might at least ask me if I had a good time. I'm sorry if your conscience bothered you. Oh, well, it didn't. I had a divine time, and I met all sorts of interesting people. Mostly men. You don't say. What else? Well, it was this desert ranch, you know, with a lot of, uh, buttes around. You, uh, mentioned those. No, Sam, no, no, no. They're the result of erosion. Those outdoor types, they go to pieces. Sam, are you pulling my leg? Not over the phone, Abby, but stay where you are. I'll be right down to look at your snapshots. And when you have the time, I'll dictate my report on the missing newshawk caper. <laughs> Dashiell Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye, and William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, join their talents to make your hair stand on end with the adventures of Sam Spade. Presented by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. And now, with Howard Duff starring as Spade, Wild Root brings to the air the greatest private detective of them all in the adventures of Sam Spade. Of Canab on Virgin River. Canab, the Pearl of the West. Uh huh. And did I mention the buttes? Oh, well, they're very interesting. The uh, result of erosion. Yes. And it's authentic, too. Say Hamlin's Ranch. You uh, mean a working ranch? Yes. You see, that way you get into the spirit. Mm-hmm. My job was to feed the chickens. And that's how I met him. One of the buttes? Oh, Sam, he's a very cultured gentleman. Culture smulcher. What's he do for a living? He, well, he cures stammering. You don't say. What's his name? Charlie Shank. Charlie Shank? He's the founder of the Shank Institute of Articulative Correction, which I should learn. Articulative Correction. Where is this institute? Oh, I have the address here. Um, General Delivery, Butte, Montana. Mm Mm-hmm. You're sure you didn't help him break parole, Effie? Oh, no, oh, no, no. We just went on long walks together. Where to? Oh, different points of interest. Like, uh, like Wolf Canyon... Figures. Uh-huh. He invited me on this camping ship, a trip. Honorable, of course. Mm. But I couldn't go on account of my sunburn. Oh, oh. an awful, awful. Oh, I still got bad. it, you see. Mm. And then, then he went back to Butte. 
He had to leave in such a hurry he couldn't even say goodbye. Wow. It was a pity, too, because an old friend he hadn't seen in years came looking for him just a few minutes later. With a warrant? No. No, he was an attendant in a nearby hospital. Mental? Oh, yes. Very intelligent. <coughs> he read me some of his poetry. Maybe you've heard it. Um, a loaf of bread... A jug of wine and thou. Uh, wait a minute. Isn't that the Rubaiyat of Omer Khayyam? That was written by a guy named Fitzgerald. Well, of course. That's his pen name. Quite a penman. Yes, but he's paid his debt to society. And the other time it was a bad beef. Oh, no. He told me all about yes. it. He cried on my shoulder afterwards. Sweetheart, when you make a mistake, it's a beaut. Sam, nothing happened. Well, I'm glad he cured you of stammering anyhow. <clears throat> Ready? Oh, yeah. I've got a brand Work, new you notebook. you know. Life goes on. I've got a brand new notebook, Sam. I'll just turn over a new leaf. Not a bad idea, dear. <laughs> uh, date, uh, July 18 to Mr. Alex M. Youngblood. Uh, mm, try that again. Mr. Alex M. Youngblood, P.O., Box 317, San Francisco, from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Dear Mr. Youngblood, I need a vacation myself. You need Charlie Shank. <sighs> sound tired, Sam. Fortunately, until I met you, my only experience with any of the men and women who make your newspaper run had been with one of your corner newsboys who shortchanged me two times within as many days. I have not read your rag since. But your name looked imposing, and so did the $300 check upon which you had written it. Per your instructions, promptly at 4 p.m. on the 15th inst., I munched through the litter of your city room toward a door marked A.M. Youngblood, publisher, managing editor, and city editor. I wondered if you were ambitious, frugal, or three men. I did not know that you had good taste until I saw the trim, 20-ish, and toothsome secretary in your outer office. Hello. You're new here, aren't you? Uh, well, I'm not exactly here. I'm just here to see Mr. Youngblood. Oh. The name is Spade. Samuel Spade? Sam, except for my most intimate friends. <laughs> well, my advice to you, Sam, is to be the hasty retreat. He's in a foul mood. Oh? Uh, why? Is he blind or older than he feels? I refer, of course, to your spectacular charm, Miss, uh, if I may call you Miss. Please, this is neither the time nor the place. My name is Phyllis Watson, and my phone number is in the directory, if you're really interested. I could be. Thank you. And if a man answers, tell him you're my French teacher. We. Oui. You better go in now. If you're late to an appointment with him, you're through. Uh, do you have any more words of wisdom? No, but I hope you can do something to improve his state of mind. He's been awful lately. Good luck, Sam. Uh, thank you, Phyllis Watson. Come in, come in. Now, one minute past four. You must be Mr. Spade. That's right. You're almost late. Sit down, Spade. Cigar? Uh, no, thanks. Well, don't expect me to offer a drink. You aren't a drinker, I hope. You don't listen to the radio, do you? Well, you'll not drink in this office. Nothing here but a cooler filled with water from a clean, gurgling, laughing mountain stream. You sound like a reformed drunk, Mr. Youngblood. What's that? Well, it was a good many years ago. If you don't mind, I'll just paste up the weather report for my morning edition before we talk. Oh, you do that too, huh? Yes, obviously. And with good reasons. I remind myself that I was once a copy boy, and I find it a splendid way to, uh, at least once each day, to lower myself to the level of the working man. There we are. Very hot in Phoenix, I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, just what do you want a detective for, Mr. Youngblood? I was coming to that, Mr. Spade. Sorry. Now, uh, <clears throat> well, first let me warn you that your assignment is a highly confidential one. They all are. In this case, a man's life may be at stake. Mm -hmm. The situation... 
My newspaper, at my order and under my guidance, has launched a campaign against crime, not aimed at the petty criminal, but at the easy-living leeches at the controls of the rackets, the hoods in bankers' clothing, the mansion-house parasites who direct the pickpockets, the second-story men, the housebreakers, who gamble away yeah, half a million uh, dollars a easy. year uh, and uh, pay income taxes. Yeah, yeah, don't go to pieces. Of that amount. Uh, yes, I understand, I understand. Uh, you're after the boys on the safer side of the fences. Well, well, nicely put, Spade, yes. Thank you. The long and short of it is this. The author of the expose series, Ray McCulley, my top crime reporter, has been missing for two days. I want you to find him. What makes you think he's still alive? Good heavens, Spade. Why must you suggest that he isn't? Because if I were a mansion-housed parasite in danger of being unhoused by a newshawk, I'd see said newshawk standing in a cement block in the bottom of the bay. I will accept that only when no stone has been left unturned. Every straw and every haystack has been searched... Every... Uh, nook and cranny? Uh, yes. Sounds as though you need at least one police force, Mr. Youngblood. Now, why don't no, you just... No, uh... no, no, no. Impossible. We've already had a brush with the police over the expose. I'll not be dictated to at this stage of the game. I started this investigation, and I'll finish it alone. Well, it's a pretty big order, Mr. Youngblood, but uh, times are tough. I'll see what I can do. Good. I hereby turn over to you all the resources and power of this, my newspaper. When one of my reporters is in trouble or danger, sir, I will spend every penny of my fortune, if necessary, to deliver aid and succor to his side. You then gave me Ray McCulley's expose stories to date. I saw why you, his family and friends, and his creditors could have been worried about it. They were hot. One followed a stolen car from the time of the heist through the alteration of the body color, tire brands, license number, motor serial number to the time it was shoved onto a used car lot. They named names all the way through. And another did the same to the firm of Otter, Badger, and Mole, furriers, and alleged manufacturers of coats from clouted pelts. Ray McCulley had dropped out of sight right after that story had been published. So I left your office hoping that I'd reach the address of Otter, Badger, and Moe before closing time. I did. The plushy showroom was occupied by a dozen attractive fur-bearing models, female, but wax. The live models, male, were wearing padded shoulders, pointed shoes, and coats tailored for underarm artillery. They would have looked more natural at Madame Facade's waxworks, Bertram the burglar section. Hey, oh, hey, what'll that be? Something for a little woman? Uh, where do I find Mr. Otter? You the Lord? Uh, Leo sent me. He's in his office. Come on. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't crowd me. You say you want to see the boss? On business. Stop nudging me with a rod. In there. Hey, move. Okay, okay. Hey, uh, boss. Yes, Woody? Here's uh, Joe here to see you. Leo sent him. Well, nudge him in, Woody. No nudging, Woody. Well, well, well. So Leo's sending a man to see me. I wonder why. If you'll uh, comb this character here out of my hair, I'll try and tell you. Sit down, Woody. Mm. Thanks. You're new in town. Uh, yeah, that's why Leo sent me. A local muckraker named Ray McCulley interviewed you. He also interviewed Leo, but it didn't get printed yet. Uh, Leo wants to find him. So do I. How can I help? Well, uh, he walked out of here, went to his hotel, wrote the story, and mailed it in. That's the last anybody's seen of him. Uh, Leo was just sort of hoping that you'd already taken care of him. Not yet. That's all I wanted to know. Thanks. Just a moment. Yeah? Leo sending you out alone? Why not? That's a tough boy, that McCulley. He's got plenty of protection. That's what you need. What kind of protection? Go along with him, Woody. Who, me? 
You're Woody, aren't you? Now, look, uh, look, Mr. Otter. I don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth, but the way I see it, this is a, a lone wolf-type caper. Hey, what's the matter, Hey, You think I'm too good for you? Well, Woody, I wouldn't say that. Good, it's settled then. Take care of him, Woody, and don't mix it up with any of Leo's boys. If he's out to get that rat McCulley, he's our friend. I was beginning to wonder who Leo was. I'd grabbed the name off a calendar on the wall, Leo's van and storage. I didn't know whether he was the Leo Mr. Otter didn't like, and I hoped I wouldn't find out. The best way I could think to keep from finding out was to shake Woody. On the way uptown, I walked him past four police stations. Crossing Market Street, I pushed him straight into the arms of a traffic cop who begged his pardon and let me off with a warning. At the Blue Bottle Bar and Grill, I gave Joe, the bartender, the Mickey Finn sign, but Woody liked it. He ordered another. Then he said he knew a place on Columbus where the drinks were even better. It was called Leo's Place. I wondered if that meant anything. Hey, you, hey. Uh, who, me, huh? I want you a drink. Don't you like this joint? Yeah, sure, it's fine. Uh, we're not getting anywhere, though. You really take your work serious. Me, when I go gun for somebody, I go where I'm least likely to succeed. You live long Yeah. Uh, Woody, what do you know about this guy, uh, McCulley? You hear the puss. He says he's a rat. Yeah, but he said he's got plenty of protection. Who's furnishing it? Well, you see, there's a... Boy, oh boy. Look at what just walked in. I looked. What I saw was not disappointing. She was wearing a skin-tight black satin with a plunging neckline and a new look only in places where it didn't matter. But she still looked enough like your secretary, Phyllis Watson, to be out of place in Leo's place. She didn't stay there long. She made a beeline through the kitchen to the rear exit. I made a beeline right after her. Woody was breathing down my neck as I started up the rickety outside stairway at the back of the building. I uh, stopped the landing and turned around to face him. See you later, Woody. I didn't wait to see if he made it all the way to the bottom of the stairs. I was more interested in what was going on at the top. A door had opened and Phyllis stepped inside. The man who let her in looked like Ray McCulley. Who are you? Well, the name is Spade. I don't know that name. Your boss hired me to find you. Private Dick. Yeah. Can I uh, talk to you for a minute? Sure. Put your hands behind your neck and walk up slow. Okay. All right. Go inside. Well, what's the matter? You're not acting glad to see me. This is the guy, fellas. Yes. Alex hired him this afternoon. There, you see. Now, uh, what do you want me to tell Youngblood? You're not going to tell anybody anything. Oh. It caught me right behind the ear. The last thing I saw was that plunging neckline as Phyllis rushed forward. I didn't know whether she was rushing to my rescue or to get in a few licks of her own. Five seconds later, I didn't care. As the design of the linoleum slammed up at me, I had just time to wonder why, of all the people who were looking for Ray McCulley, I had to find him. Then I was out. Boing. Maced for my pains. Makers of Wild Root Cream Oil are presenting the weekly Sunday adventure of Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, Sam Spade. And now, back to the missing Newshawk caper. 
tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. I was lying on the floor in a room with nothing in it but a sink, an army cot, a square of dirty linoleum, and a body. I staggered to my feet, ran some cold water over my head, and took a closer look. It was Ray McCulley. He was a very dead, crusading reporter. He'd been stabbed clean through with a long-bladed kitchen knife. It set on the handle, property of Leo's place. I went through his pockets. and his wallet, a press card, a police card, union card, and ten genuine, crisp, new thousand-dollar bills. That gave me a line on the killer. He was crazy. So was I. I left it on him, too. Folded up in his vest pocket, I found two newspaper clippings, one from the Chronicle and one from your paper. Both weather reports for the same date. It was very hot in Phoenix, according to both papers. But according to your weather report, the temperature in Needles, California, was 135 degrees. That needled me. So did the slip of paper I found on his shoe. The number nine and a date had been stamped on it with a rubber stamp. The date was the same as that of the weather reports. I turned it over. It said Ruthie's booth, Manson Bowling Alley. Corona's a panatelli. Uh, thanks. I'm just shopping. Uh, I got a nice line of notions. So have I. Uh, no, I mean the dolls, the Hollywood dolls. You know, for the bed, only a dollar plus tax. Very reasonable. Say, what's on your mind? Uh, Leo sent me. Oh. Are you going to collect the slips hereafter? Well, uh, not tonight. You see, I'm uh, sort of a troubleshooter. Leo's uh, checking up on some of the numbers that didn't come out right. Listen, I'll tell him to his face. I don't want any part of those wrong numbers. They're scary. Nuts. Who bought this one? Let me see. Oh, last Thursday. Oh, number nine. How can I forget? He put $500. And honest, if he's been around once, he's been around a hundred times to see if it paid off, did it? What's his name? Mr. Spinelli. He buys a slip every day. And if you ask me, he's learned a system. Because he's been winning, you know. Dimes and then a dollar and then five dollars. And then when he come in with 500 on number nine, until he dropped dead. Did it win? Where does he live? <gasps> it did. Wait, I'll look on the sheet. Hey, somebody else was in just this afternoon. Give me that address. Hurry up, will you? It's right around the corner on Manson, 810. Say, maybe that's his system, 8 and 1. Don't that add up to 9? Hey, what's the matter? Where are you going in such a run? Please, come back later. Tomorrow... Next week. Are you Mrs. Spinelli? Yes, please. I had so much trouble. Is your husband home? Oh, my poor man. They take him away. He's dead. Oh, I'm sorry. How did it happen? Who are you? I'm a detective. Maybe I can help you. May I come in? All right. Come on. Quite a while to gain her confidence, and after that it took still quite a while to piece together the grief-stricken grumble of words that poured out of her. When I got it down in the form of a statement, I asked her to read it over. Item. Statement by Mrs. Arturo Spinelli. All the time he played those numbers. I told him they're just a bunch of gangsters. They don't let you win. Then he met this man, Macaulay, all right, for the newspaper. 
My husband says this man shows him how to win. He wins and wins. Then he goes to bank and takes out all our savings. I begged for him not to do it. But no, no, you are greedy. And this Macaulay poisoned his mind. Sure, he won. He brought the money home in his hand. Ten thousand dollars. I don't want it. I'm scared. I took it while he was sleeping with wine and gave it to the men. I tell him all I want is the five hundred. He tried to tell me we do good. We help catch the big gangsters. I say we don't want to do so good we get murdered in our beds. So he says, okay. But if I change mine, here is address. I don't change my mind. Because already my husband, he is dead. At home. Stand. No, I don't change my mind. She signed it, and I left her alone with her grief. I wasn't working for you anymore, Mr. Youngblood. You hired me to find your reporter, and I had. And I wished I hadn't. The rest of it I did for myself. You weren't in your office when I got there, but Phyllis was. I found her behind the city desk in the act of dropping tomorrow morning's weather report into the slot. I grabbed her out of her hand. What? Oh, it's you. Where's your boss? At home, I guess. We'll talk in his office. Come on. Sam, uh, I can explain how I have. You're going to be... explain plenty before I'm finished with you. Sit down. Oh, you... I don't have to be so rough. What's the matter with you? Plenty. I'm stupid. I was stupid to take this job, and I was stupid to play it cagey with you. I should have beaten the story out of you before the trouble started. It's a little late in the day now, but not too late to send you up for McCulley's murder. Why, you're insane. Ray McCulley was... I'm the only one who ever tried to help you. And I'm the only one who can place you in that room, not ten minutes before the murder. I told you I can explain why... Stop trying to save your own skin. Spinelli was only one of a half million poor dumb yucks that lose their nickels and dimes and dollars every day in the policy racket. Only he had the bad luck to win. There won't be any more lucky dead people like him if I have to make a patsy out of you to stop it. It won't stop it. Nothing will. Ray talked big and brave like you. Now he's dead. Yeah, with 10,000 bucks dirty money in his wallet. I won't let you say things like that. Ray was an honest reporter, too honest. He thought Youngblood meant what he said about that cleanup campaign. Yeah, he did. He wanted to run this town by himself, clean up his competition. When Ray started collecting material on the numbers racket, he still thought Youngblood was on the level. But that was before he stumbled onto the thing about the weather reports. Yeah, yeah, that was a new one. The old Dutch Schultz mob used to add up the stock market quotations. If they cheated, they knew their customers weren't good enough at arithmetic to prove it. But who knows how hot it is in Phoenix unless they live there. I don't know what you're talking about. Listen, that's how the number game works, sweetheart. The suckers pick a number from one to ten, see? The operators tally up the slips, and the least popular for that day has to win. The weather report doesn't have to pass through the copy desk, and with young blood pasting it up with a few strategic corrections, it was easy to make their winners look as if they were on the level. Oh. But of course, you had no way of knowing that. You only watched them do it day after day. You know, I couldn't understand why he did those things. It, it seemed silly falsifying a weather report, but it didn't seem as if it could do any harm. What did you meet McCulley for? To get your cut of the ten grand Spinelli was killed for? How dare you? I went there to warn him about Who you. Who killed him? I don't know. You're lying. All right, I'm lying. But I can prove that Ray was on the level. I've got the proof right here. The whole story he wrote on the numbers racket, even naming Youngblood as the head of it, his own publisher. I went there to get it. I was going to take it to another newspaper. Why didn't you? I can't tell you that. You don't have to. Mrs. Spinelli was confused, grief-crazed. 
She had to put the blame on somebody, and when she did, she got her revenge the only way she thought she could. She may have been right about that, but she killed the wrong man. Why didn't you tell me you knew who killed Ray? I wanted to give you a chance to tell me yourself. I'm glad you didn't. And that, Mr. Youngblood, is the crop. I'm sure you appreciate the fact that I gave the double scoop to your paper. Like uh, Mrs. Spinelli, I have my own ideas of vengeance. Besides, it may up your circulation a little, and you can certainly use a little extra money for your defense. Uh, by the way, who's Leo? Uh, period, end of report. But, Sam. Yes, Evie. I thought Mrs. Spinelli killed Ray McCulley. The vacation helped. You were absolutely correct. Mrs. Spinelli killed Mr. McCulley, if you'll pardon the expression. But why did she kill her husband? I was wrong. The vacation didn't help. You mean she didn't? She killed McCulley to avenge the murder of her husband. You mean Mr. McCulley killed Mr. Spinelli? Effie, stop. I'll go mad. Oh, you need a vacation, Sam. Look, type that up. The clatter of the keys may stimulate you to further cerebral activity. I beg your pardon, Sam? Brain work. Now, shoot. Oh, brain work. Oh, you know best. Well, here it is, Sam. And you were absolutely right. The typing cleared my mind. It's all clear now, except for one thing. Well, let's clear that up right away. Why did Mrs. Spinelli kill her husband? She did not kill her husband. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant, why did Mr. McCulley kill Mr. Spinelli? Kelly did not kill Spinelli. Who's Kelly? McCulley. McCulley's real name was Kelly? Now, let's start all over again. Disregard everything we said up until now. Make your mind a complete blank. All right, Sam. In the first place, McCulley did not kill Spinelli. That's what I said. It was his wife, wasn't it? Now, wasn't it, Sam? Oh, stop teasing me. Sam, why do you look at me like that? Effie, Mr. Spinelli was killed by one of the policy racket hoods to get back the ten grand he won on the numbers game. Then how did the money get into Kelly's pocket? McCulley's. Why do you insist on using his alias, Sam? Effie, Effie, that was a tip of the sung. I I mean, look, Mrs. Spinelli took it to him because she was afraid her husband might be killed for it. Then why didn't they take the money when they killed him? Because Mrs. Spinelli had already taken it. Then she did kill him. Go home, Effie. All right, Sam. I'm sorry I'm so irritable to you, but I, I thought it... Well, it's been so long since oh, I've no, been here, you know, there, Sam, Angel, and I... Angel, you're just tired. Vacations have a habit of doing that to you. After a week or two in the office, you'll be all rested up again. I'll take it You easy. act as though you thought my mind were affected. Come here. Oh, Come Sam, here. now don't. My sunburn. Yeah. Oh, it hurts. It's nice to have you back. You look good, too. All tanned and healthy. You're roof. It's great. I think my nose is peeling. Well, don't pick at it. <laughs> Good night, Sam. Good night, sweetheart. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, are produced and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade is played by Howard Duff. Lorene Tuttle is Effie. The Adventures of Sam Speed are written for radio by Bob Tallman and Gil Dowd, with musical direction by Lud Gluskin. Gil Dowd directed tonight's broadcast in William Spears' absence. Join us again next Sunday for another adventure with Sam Spade, brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. This is Dick Joy reminding you to... Get Wild Root Cream Oil, Charlie. It keeps your hair in trim. You see, it's non-alcoholic, Charlie. It's made with soothing lanolin. You better get Wild Root Cream Oil, Charlie. Start using it today. You'll find
find that you will have a tough time, Charlie, keeping all the gals away. Hiya, Baldy. Get wild root right away. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And that's The Adventures of Sam Spade Detective from July 18, 1948, with the missing Newshawk caper starring Howard Duff. It's time now for the first half of My Friend Irma situation comedy series that was set in Manhattan, came to radio in 1947, lasted until 1954. You could also see My Friend Irma in the movies and on a TV series. Marie Wilson starred as Irma Peterson, dim-witted blonde stenographer, with Kathy Lewis as her roommate, Jane Stacy. This was a very funny series, Lisa, and we have a broadcast for you now from February 9th, 1948. It's called Billy Boy the Boxer. Here's Marie Wilson in the first half of My Friend Irma. Lieber Brothers Company, makers of Swan, the soap with the exclusive super-creamed blend presents... Our friend, Swan. With my friend, Irma. Starring Marie Wilson as Irma and Kathy Lewis as Jane. Friendship, friendship, just a perfect friendship. When other friendships have been forgot, theirs will still be hot. population the size of New York's, they're bound to be many people like yourself. But of one thing I'm certain, in all New York, yes, in all the world, there can only be one Irma Peterson. (laughs) How do I know? Because only one person thinks like my beloved roommate. For instance, the other day I was reading the newspaper and I said, Irma. Yes, Jane? Listen to this headline in the paper, Higher Meat Prices Predicted for 1948. Isn't that awful? Oh, it sure is, Jane. It's going to give a lot of people an inferiority complex. Inferiority complex? Yes, I heard that the human body is only worth 97 cents. Why should a cow be any better than you or me? (laughs) I would try to find an answer for that, but right now I'm more concerned with Irma's heart than her mind. You see, Valentine's Day is nearly here, and with the approach of any holiday with the least romantic significance, Irma becomes certain that Al is going to propose. She felt that way on Mother's Day... (laughs) On Father's Day In fact, on every holiday except Labor Day (laughs) She knows that that's the day when Al hides (laughs) But I know that she's banking heavily on the culmination of her dreams this Valentine's Day Because right now she's down on her knees in front of her hope chest Examining its contents Believe me, such contents no human eye has ever seen in a hope chest (laughs) In one corner, she has stacked bottles of root beer, Mission Orange, cherry soda, and Cokes. <laughs> Irma, what is the idea? Well, when maybe when Al sees all that pop, he'll want to become a father. <laughs> I see. And what about that calendar, honey? You've torn off all 12 months. Why? 
Well, they say when you get married, the first year is the hardest, and I don't want to know about it. <laughs> Sweetie, I don't want to be cruel, but what makes you think that Al is going to leap into action now? Valentine's Day is coming. Oh, honey, you said the same thing about leap year. You were going to land him on the first day of leap year. Well, it was fate. I was a good leaper, but he was a better ducker. <laughs> Irma, do you seriously intend to marry Al? The moment he asks me. You intend to have children, don't you? Six. Six? Four of each. <laughs> there may be twins, you know. Yeah, well, that's what I'm driving at, honey. You see, children need food, they need clothes, they need education. Well, I was going to educate them myself. Yeah, I know, honey, but after kindergarten... Well, then Al will take over All right, then after reform school Oh, look, Jane, I, I know what you say is, is true But I love Al and I want to marry him I, I'm just going to let the future take care of itself Oh, Irma, Now, this please, man... Jane, my mind is made up Oh, gee, I'd better hurry to the beauty parlor I'll be late Honey, why do you keep spending money on the beauty parlor? You have such wonderful, naturally curly blonde hair. Yes, but people keep saying there's n there's so much that needs to be done to my head. <laughs> See you later. Hello. Oh, it's you, Al. Uh -uh, she just left for the beauty parlor. She'll be right back. What? You're shopping for her Valentine present? What would she like? Gee, I don't know. Uh, where are you shopping? Near Tiffany's? How near Tiffany's? <laughs> oh, the five and ten. Well, look, Al, will you come over here? There's something very important that I want to discuss with you, huh? Yeah, while Irma's gone. Please hurry, will you? Bye. Come in. It's only me, Professor Kropotkin. <laughs> Jenny, I hope I'm not intruding. No, Professor, not at all. What's on your mind? Well, I'm going away for a week, and I want to sublet my room. Does this ad read right? Well, let me hear it. Wanted gentleman to sublet room. Must be insane. Ah, <laughs> oh, Professor, don't be so dramatic. If there's as much wrong with your room as you say, why call Mrs. O'Reilly up and put your foot down? This is impossible. If I put my foot down in that room, I go right through the floor. <laughs> well, Professor, I sympathize with you, but I've got other things on my mind. What's wrong with Irma now? Well, she's made up her mind that she's going to marry Al. And you are worried that he won't be able to make a living for her, eh? Well, you know how long it's been since he worked. Yes, that was when the Normandy turned over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and he tried to sell the life preservers for white wall tires. <laughs> Jenny, you got to be philosophical. You know, there is an old saying, all the world is a stage. How does that apply? It don't. This is only a consolation if you ain't got money to go to the movies. Um, that's Al. That's Al. Uh, Professor, I'm expecting him. Uh, come in. Oh, Jane. Oh, hiya, Professor. Hello, Al. Well, I got to be running along. Don't you want to hear about my new deal? Look, another deal he's got. What is it this time? Shaving cats and selling them for Mexican chihuahuas? <laughs> I stopped tampering with animals, but got a natural. It's a pair of binoculars with built-in pictures of pinup girls. So when a dame drags her husband to the opera, he'll have something to look at. <laughs> How's it sound? Like all the others. <laughs> now, if you'll excuse me, I'll go up to my room and feed my birds. Birds? What kind of birds do you have? I don't know. When you haven't got any windows, you don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> Goodbye. 
Well, Jane, what did you want to see me about that's so important? Well, Al, I want to talk to you about Irma. Oh. She loves you, and since she has no family within 1,500 miles, I'd like to talk to you like, well, like her father would. Fair enough. Now, Al, just what are your intentions regarding Irma? Well, Pop, I'll tell you. <laughs> I love Irma, and someday I hope to give her my name. What else? <laughs> what else? Yes, what are you going to do about a job? Well, I... I sent an application in. Al, that was a year ago. Boulder Dam is finished. <laughs> Forget about it. Al, you have got to go out and get yourself a job. Oh, now, look, Jane, you got me all wrong. I'm not against work. It's just that a man like me has got to pick the right spot. What do you mean? Well, I'm not the kind of a guy that can work for somebody else. I feel I'm a born leader. Got to do things on my own. Maybe I got that same drive that you find in men like Edison, Marconi, Louis Pasteur, and... and Rip uh, Van Winkle. <laughs> well, look, Jane, that's how I am, and nothing's going to change me. I'm willing to work. I want to work for myself. Oh, Al, that's ridiculous. Why? Richard works for himself. Are you comparing yourself to Richard? Why, he's a self-made man. Richard could retire on just what people owe him. Well, I could retire on what I owe people. <laughs> now, Al, don't joke. I give you my word that unless you straighten yourself out, I'm going to do my best to prevent Irma from marrying you. Well, I've got to go down and meet Richard now, but this isn't the last that you've heard from me. Oh, hello, chicken. Hi, Jane. Hello, Al, honey. Oh, Al, your ears are burning. I bet you were talking about me. Yeah, chicken. I was just telling Jane how much I love you. Oh, Jane, isn't Al the answer to a girl's dreams? It all depends on what she ate before she went to bed. <laughs> well, I've got to run along now, kids, but you uh, think about what we discussed, Al. Bye. Well, what did Jane mean, honey? Ah, the dame burns me up. Just because her guy Richard is loaded with dough, she keeps harping on me to get a job. Well, Al, I think if you loved me, you would. If I loved you? Chicken, how can you hurt me like that? <laughs> hurt you, Al? If you only knew how thoughts of you stay with me everywhere I go. In the subway, the wheels go clickety-clack, clickety-clack. But in my ears, they're saying, erm, erm, erm. In the park, the wind caressing my cheek is just the soft touch of your fingers. Even in Coney Island, when I'm throwing baseballs, your face is always before me. Oh, Al, that, that's beautiful. I, I'm sorry I doubted your love. Don't want you to be sorry, chicken. Just want you to understand my problem. You see, there are two types of men. The weak-willed, who are always on the defense, and the strong-minded, who like to take the offense. Oh, I understand, Al. I've never found anyone more offensive than you. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. See, that's why, by nature, I can't work for anybody else. Well, why don't you work for yourself, Al? Well, that takes cash, chicken. And we'll just have to wait until I can get my hands on some. Oh, Al. Oh, what's the matter, chicken? I'm so tired of waiting and waiting and waiting. I'm afraid my children are going to be older than I am. <laughs> can't be helped, chicken. Oh, back already? Oh, hiya, Richard. Hello, Al. Jane has been telling me that you've been making snide remarks, that I owe my success to the fact that I was born with a gold spoon in my mouth. Well, that's ridiculous. You would have choked to death. Oh. <laughs> Irma, please. Now, Al, what you say is not true. I had to work for my success. 
Now, I admit my father gave me $1,000 to get started with, but from there on, it was up to me. So what? If anyone gave me $1,000 with my business mind, you'd see a new sign on Wall Street. J.P. Morgan and Al. <laughs> oh, Al, I think your name should come first. After all, you're putting up the money. <laughs> Irma... Irma, will, will you just stay out of this? Look, please? Al, what, what you're trying to tell me is that the only thing you want is a start, right? Right. Okay, Al, I've got a proposition to make. Huh? Now, Jane and I are terribly fond of Irma, and her future welfare is our chief concern. Now, since you say you can't work for anyone else but must be on your own, well, we want you to have the same opportunity I had. So, here is my check for $1,000. Oh, I couldn't accept it. It's certified. Oh, that's different. <laughs> okay, Richard, thanks. Now I'll show you. Now remember, Al, it's a loan and it must be used in a legitimate business. A legitimate, huh? <laughs> well, that may slow me down a bit, but I'll think of something. Twenty-four hours since Al started out to set the world on fire with Richard's thousand dollars. So far, we've had no word from him. I'm not confident. Because knowing Al and his deals, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if he buys a thousand dollars worth of peas, whitewashes them, and sells them for pearls. <laughs> Honestly, I'm really worried. After all, I was responsible for Richard lending the thousand dollars. Irma. What, Jane? Wonder what sort of business Al is going to invest in. Hello? Hello, chicken. This is Al. Now, let me do the talking. Don't want Jane to know it's me. You understand? Yes, Henry. Got great news, chicken. Just bought a sensational heavyweight. Paid the $1,000 for his contract. He's got 10 decisions and 5 knockouts to his credit. Well, that's wonderful. What business is he in? Chicken, he's a fighter. Name is Billy Boy. Gonna make a fortune with this guy. I don't crack to Jane till I get there. Want to see the way her eyes light up when I tell her. All right, George. Goodbye Irma, I heard you say Henry Why'd you say goodbye, George? Well, uh, uh, they're partners <laughs> Irma Peterson Was that Al? Was it? Well, you'll never find out from me Al would hate me if I told you <laughs> That's the first half of My Friend Irma From February 9th, 1948 a show called Billy Boy the Boxer, starring Marie Wilson. We'll have more of that after these words. Every six days in the U.S., a tow truck operator is hit and killed on our highways. It's up to you to remember the three C's of safety, caution, courtesy, and above all, common sense. Remember the life you save could be your own. This message courtesy of Nick's Towing, where they are working hard for the future of our great community. For all of your towing needs, call 847-671-5290 or 630-774-9769. That's Nick's Towing on the air because they care. After the news, we'll have the conclusion to My Friend Irma, and then it's Crime Classics. It'll be Hour 2, right after the news. Hour 2 of the WGN Radio Theater. We're here every Saturday night from 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning. In this hour, it's the conclusion to My Friend Irma. Plus, we'll tune into Crime Classics. 
Texting and driving is very serious. Remember, safe driving is everyone's responsibility. Put the phone down and don't text and drive. This message, courtesy of Blaine's Automotive, located at 11917 South Arrow Drive in Plainfield. For the best in automobile service, stop by 11917 South Arrow Drive in Plainfield or call 630-877-0097. That's 630-877-0097. That's Blaine's Automotive on the air, reminding everyone to arrive alive don't text and drive all right stick around we have my friend irma after these words welcome back hour two of the wgn radio theater in our last hour we began listening to a comedy episode of my friend irma starring marie wilson this is from february 9th 1948 it's called billy boy the boxer and here's the conclusion what business is he in? Well, I can't tell you until he does. Oh, well, all right. Then I won't try to guess. There's no sense in my knocking myself out. Oh, you guessed it. What? Uh, knocking yourself out. He's a fighter. His name is Billy Boy. What? A fighter? Oh, Irma, you... Come in. It's only me again. <laughs> Janie, why do you look so distressed? Oh, Professor, Richard loaned Al $1,000 to go into business, and he bought a prize fighter named Billy Boy. Sleeping Billy Boy, I know him well. He was married to a little waitress in the gypsy tea room. They finally got a divorce. Fighting? Yeah, she was always beating him up. Ah, uh, that's what I figured. Oh, why did I ever talk Richard into this thing? Well, maybe Billy Boy's making a comeback. Who knows, if they get the right match, he might win. Oh, who with any kind of a name could he beat? Uh, Margaret O'Brien. <laughs> Come in. Hiya, folks. Well, I did it. Well, what's all the noise? <laughs> hey, Jane, why are you staring at me like that? You haven't heard the good news. Oh, you heard the good news. <laughs> well, I, I didn't tell her, Al. She guessed. Al, how could you do this? Now, wait a minute. You don't even know the man. I admit the guy's been knocked out in his first ten fights, but he's coasting. <laughs> Wants to find the right spot. Where, in the morgue? Now, look, Jane, I never was a chump, and I ain't one now. Got Billy Boy booked to fight gentleman Jim McKenzie, and I'm going to clean up? Oh, well, you're out of your mind. Now, take it easy, Jane. Before you start condemning me, why don't you come down to the gym and take a look at my boy? Oh, let's go, Jane. Gee, I haven't been to a gym since I went to school. Wait a minute. Where are you going? To get my midi blouse and bloomers. <laughs> At the gym, Al, myself, and the bloomer girl. <laughs> and overpounding the punching bag is Al's fighter. Yeah, there he stands, a mass of something. <laughs> I don't think he's very solid because the electric fan is on and he's rippling. <laughs> but he does have an interesting face. <laughs> Two large, bushy eyebrows. No. My mistake, that's his hairline. <laughs> the man has no forehead. I don't know how to describe him quickly. Let us just say that if you printed the word brandy on his Adam's apple, he could pass for a St. Bernard. <laughs> but I must say, he has quite a punch. Now he's shadow boxing. He swings his right, he swings his left. Now he's down. I think his shadow hit back. <laughs> no, no, he slipped. Hey, Billy Boy, get up. What happened? Sorry, boss. It's this trick knee of mine again. Trick knee? Yeah. Well, you didn't say anything about that when I signed you. Don't like to talk about it. 
Does it bother you often? Oh, no, only when I fight. <laughs> Every time I get set to throw a punch, my knee buckles. And while I'm bending over to see what's wrong, they let me have it. But don't worry, boss. In a few days, I'm as good as ever. Well, Al, I have to congratulate you. Most promoters are satisfied just to buy a regular fighter. You, you have to be fancy. You have to get the collapsible model. <laughs> but he kept it a secret. The guy I bought him from said he was fast on his feet, very shifty. How should I know every time he shifted, he went out of gear? Well, Al, now that I've seen your fighter, I'll run along and tell Richard that he's poorer by a thousand dollars. What a businessman. Oh, gee, Al, I think Jane's unfair. No, chicken, she's right. Billy Boyle get in the ring, and in one minute he'll be down on his knee. Well, that's not so bad. That's the way Al Jolson started. <laughs> But I can't sing. Oh, Al, don't be downhearted. Ah, oh, please, Chicken. What's the use of kidding ourselves? This guy is nothing. I've been taken, gypped, swindled. And there's only one honest thing to do. Well, what, Al? Try to unload him on somebody else. <laughs> and in a case like that, there's only one man who can help us. Who, Al? Who else but... Hello, Joe. <laughs> Al, got a problem. Want to unload a boxer. No, not a dog. Wait, I take that back. He is. His name is Billy Boy. Yeah, that's the guy. Uh, Joe, I'm stuck with him. How can I unload him without people finding out about his knee? Uh-huh. 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 Mm-hmm. Put Irma on his lap and sell him for a ventriloquist. <laughs> Look, Joe, I'm in no mood for gags. I gotta think fast. So long. Nothing doing, Al? No, we're cooked. Out of my way. I'm ready. I'll kill him. Hold it, Billy. That's not the gong. It's the... <laughs> hello? Uh, hello, Stillman's Jim. I, I want to talk to Al. Yeah, this is Al. What do you want, Richard? I understand you're not the financial wizard you set out to be. Don't rub it in, Richard. Now, what I mean is that I hear that you took your investment and didn't put it in, shall we say, a solid piece of furniture. Well, he's solid, all right, but how can I know he'd turn out to have gate-leg knees? Well, look, Al, uh, Jane's here in the office, and we want to talk to you. Come over here right away. You've gotten us all in a mess. I'll be right over, Richard. Goodbye. Chicken, it's murder. Can't work for others. Can't work for myself. Just don't know how I'm going to make a living. Oh, but, Al, what if Billy Boy beats gentleman Jim McKenzie tonight? Oh, Chicken, he's got no chance to win. I tell you, the guy's a bum. Oh, gee, you sound like my own mother. <laughs> Well, I got to go square myself with Richard. I'll, I'll see you. You know, miss, I don't think he has any confidence in me. Oh, now we're ruined. <laughs> and it's all your fault. Mine? You see, Al can't work for himself and has to be the boss. And Richard has always been the boss and has money, so he lent Al money so he could be in business like Richard, who has a gold spoon in his mouth, which he got from his father to buy you. <laughs> That's a little hard for me to follow <laughs> You see, I'm a little punchy from fighting so long Well, then I'll tell it to you more slowly and clearly You see, Richard wanted to invest, so he left Al invest in you Because of Richard's girlfriend, Jane, who rooms with me But you being a bad investment, I can't get married Not to you or Richard, that is, because I belong to Al 
<laughs> Lady, how long you been fighting? What's the difference? All my dreams have been shattered. Now I'll have to go back to Wisconsin. Wisconsin? You from Wisconsin, lady? Yes, I'm Irma Peterson. How do you like that? I'm from Wisconsin, too. You are? Well, when's the last time you were there? Oh, not since I started fighting. They won't let me back in the state. <laughs> There's a big debate going on over me. What is it? Wisconsin is trying to prove that I was born in North Dakota. <laughs> They're ashamed of you? Yeah. You see, I never want to fight. Well, why not? You're big and strong and you're from Wisconsin. Have you no state pride? Yeah, I'd like to win so I could go back to Wisconsin, but it's my knee. The minute I get in a ring, it buckles. I look down and the next thing you know, it's 4th of July. Fireworks all over me. <laughs> well, well, don't look down when your knee buckles. Look up. Think of Wisconsin. It will give you courage. Well, I want my state to be proud of me. Tonight, when I get in the ring, I'm going to be a different man. I'll murder Gentleman Jim McKenzie. Gee, I guess it was fate meeting you. Two lost souls, both from Wisconsin. Oh, that's right. And keep it on your mind tonight when you're fighting. Wisconsin, the dairy state. The home of the contented cow. The dairy state. Yeah, I must remember that. I must fight for dear old Wisconsin. Well, goodbye. I won't say good luck. I'll just say moo. Well, here we are at the fight. The gong for the opening round is just about to sound. Gentleman Jim McKenzie is coming into the ring, followed by his trainers. Here comes Billy Boy, supported by his trainers. <laughs> Al is beaming proudly. He's waving at the boxing commissioner with one hand and taking cigars out of the referee's pocket with the other. <laughs> now he's come over to join us. Got to hand it to Richard, Jane. He's got a great financial mind. Smart of him to make us all bet on McKenzie to beat Billy Boy. In that way, we'll get even and make a little. Well, things like that account for my success. And to use a Wall Street term, it's called protecting your investment. Say, here, here comes Irma. Yeah. What is she doing with a cowbell in each hand? <laughs> What's the difference? The fight's going to start. Yeah, sit, sit down. down. Sit down, Irma. Sit down. Ladies and gentlemen, the final event of tonight's Elks Club Smoker, a ten-round bout to the finish. On my right... Weighing 185 pounds, that pride of Boston, Gentleman Jim McKenzie. Hooray! What a prize! Money in the bank. And on my left, weighing 180 pounds, originally from Wisconsin, Billy Boy. <laughs> what is that, Irma? Well, Jane, you see, as soon as... Wait, honey, wait, the fight's starting. Shh. Well, there they go. Both fighters are in the ring. Gentleman Jim is pulling back his left. There it goes forward. And there goes Billy Boy downward. Well, folks, let's get ready to collect our money. Seven, eight, nine. Irma, what are you mooing about? Oh, you'll see, Jane. See what? Oh, oh my goodness, what I'm now seeing, no one would believe. Billy Boy is up. But not for long. He's down again. Six, seven, eight. Moo. <laughs> 
mooing. Oh, but you see, Jane... Oh, honey, be quiet. Billy Boy is up. He's a different man. Look! Now Mackenzie's down. Eight, nine, ten, you're out. <gasps> no! No! Billy Boy has won the fight. Oh, I did it, Jane. I did it. And it was all because of my mooing. What are you talking about? Well, we wanted Billy Boy to win. And when I found out he was from Wisconsin, I got him to fight like a man. Irma, this may be news to you, but your mooing has just cost Richard $3,000. You see, we bet on Mackenzie. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, Richard. I thought you wanted Billy Boy to win. That's why I mooed. You see, we're both from Wisconsin. Wisconsin? Irma, you were born in Minnesota. (laughs) Well, this is a fine time to tell me. Friend Irma, presented by Swan, another fine product of Lever Brothers Company, was produced and directed by Cy Howard. Tonight's script was written by Cy Howard and Park Levy. Frank Bingman speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That's my friend Irma from February 9th, 1948 with Billy Boy the Boxer, starring Marie Wilson and Kathy Lewis. Hope you enjoyed that. In just a moment, we'll tune into Crime Classics, but I want to remind everyone listening that we have five free classic radio shows waiting for you at our website, 100radioshows.com. Just go to that website, Put your email address in, and we'll send you five classic radio shows. Right, Lisa? Right. If you haven't done it, what are you waiting for? You can get Jack Benny, Fibber McGee and Molly, Suspense, Gunsmoke, and Richard Diamond, Private Detective, all absolutely free. Right. And there's hundreds of additional classic radio shows there that you can peruse, hopefully want to buy. And if you do, make sure you use the promo code radio at checkout, because if you use the promo code radio, you will save seven. 70% on your order. What a great way to build your collection and save some money. 100radioshows.com. All right, time now for Crime Classics. This was a docudrama that came to CBS Radio June 15th, 1953. Lasted about a year till 1954. It was created, produced, and directed by the very talented Elliot Lewis. Now, this was a true crime series examining crimes and murders all throughout history. It grew out of Elliot Lewis's personal interest in famous murder cases, and it took a documentary-like approach to the subject, carefully recreating the facts, personages, and feel of the time period. Lou Merrill portrayed our host, Thomas Hyland, and the series featured radio's finest supporting players. We have a broadcast for you now, going back to July 6th, 1953. It's called The Shrapneled Body of Charles Drew Sr., stars Lou Merrill. Here uninterrupted now is Crime Classics. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Hyland. I'm going to tell you another true crime story. Listen. 
The sound you hear is that of a man having his right hand hook filed. It's Saturday night in London town, and he wants to be gleaming and presentable. The year is 1739, when a well-sharpened hook in London town was considered prudent. And Captain Rat, that's R-A-T-T, besides being a drunkard, a scoundrel, and a smuggler, was a prudent man. The young man handling the file is named Charles Drew, Jr., and he is performing this intimate little ironmongery because he needs a favor done. Captain Rat can help him out. He can supply the youngster with an alibi, and Junior badly needs one, for he has just shot his father dead. And tonight, my report to you on the shrapnel body of Charles Drew, Sr. <laughs> Crime Classics, a new series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Hyland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Hyland. The year, as I've told you, is 1739, and the place? Long Melford in the county of Suffolk. Long Melford was a small, quiet town near London, and in it, a manor, and in the manor, a high-vaulted room of roaring fire, great shadows, and flying buttresses. Directly beneath the buttress that flew toward the west, two men, father, son, Charles Drew Sr., Jr. Son? Yes, father? The time has come for you and I to have a talk. I'm grateful. There are things vexing me. Perhaps what I have to tell you will answer your vexation. I'm very fortunate. I've tried to be a good father. A most excellent father. There's no one richer than you in Long Melford. Which is what I want to talk with you about. I know. I've drawn my latest will. This. What a gentle and most excellent father I have. Have you ear to what they say of you in the square? No, what do they say? That you are gentle and most excellent. What of the will? I'm leaving everything to your five sisters. And to you, sixpence. To lend, to spend, to start your fortune. But, but the last will, the one before this, you left me everything. And only a kind word to my five sisters. Mm. That was when you were eleven. Now you are nineteen. And a good son. To whom good? To you good. Nay, to the cutthroats and smugglers with whom you cousin. It is not so. This is so, I know it. You consort with people of ill fame, and also with Mr. Richardson's housekeeper. <laughs> Shall I explain this of Mr. Richardson's housekeeper to you? Twould be well. She is a most excellent housekeeper, and I wish to employ her for our own household. And this you have been trying to do for the last year? Well, she demands high payment. Our family can afford high payment. But I personally cannot, Father. Not until I inherit your fortune. Hmm. And which with this new will will never be. Father. I don't scare, son. Wave that gun or... (laughs) 
A smattering of intelligence concerning 1739 ballistics. Ammunition was chiefly of two types, round or irregular. The former was manufactured by dropping chunks of molten lead from a great height, and when it reached the vat of water at the bottom of flight, it was round, due to centrifugal forces and gravity. Among men who puttered with this sort of thing, round shot was considered pretty fancy. Mostly, guns were loaded in this era by whatever iron junk was to hand. It should be recorded that Charles Drew, Jr. had stopped at a small junkyard on his way to talk with his dad. This is the reason the coroner found numerous pieces of irregular junk iron in Dad's corpse. Let's see what Dad's son is up to now. Scene, Ye Old Bunnery, a rundown bake shop on Abernathy Lane. The time, two hours later. Principals, Charles Drew, Jr. and Mr. Humphrey, bun baker. What brings you to Ye Old Bunnery, Charlie? I want to know a thing. And that is what? Humphrey, how would you like a hundred pounds? You were saying hundred pounds? All you must do is say you killed a man. I killed a man? My hundred pounds, please. You must say you killed my father. I killed your father? My hundred pounds? To the police. Charlie. Two hundred pounds now, and and, and two hundred pounds after you've been to the police. You killed your poor old dad, Charlie? With this pistol. Huh? Lead you to be a very rich man? If someone were to go to the police and said he killed my father, he would be rich too. <laughs> With his neck in the gibbet. I would guarantee that the man would be released. Inside of a week he would be released. There are jailers who would release such a man, persuaded correctly, with enough money. A guarantee, I... I know a guarantee. Write me a confession that you killed your poor dear old dad. I will hide it. I will go to the police and confess the deed. If I'm still in jail in a week, I will tell the jailer there to find your confession. Wrap me up a half a dozen of your excellent buns, Humphrey, and I will give you two hundred pounds, plus the price of them. Thereupon, Humphrey plucked a quill from his favorite goose in the back goose coop, sharpened it, and presented it to Charlie. With it, the lad wrote out his confession, paid up, and left. Humphrey waited for his wife, got permission to leave the shop, stopped at his house for a moment, then walked into the local constabulary and made history with this statement. If you boys are looking for a corpus, try 26 Bloom Street. If you're wondering what his name is, it's Charles Drew Senior. If you're wondering who did the murder on him, it's me. And my name is Humphrey. The police, upon arriving at the appropriate room at 26 Bloom Street, understood immediately that foul play had been done. One of the constables was assigned to look in on the household of Mr. Humphrey, and there saw the Humphrey children at play at Thistledee-Doo, a game usually played with marbles, but by the Humphrey children, played with pieces of iron junk, which latter were of a size that could easily be rammed down the muzzle of a gun. The gun was there, too, under a pillow on Mr. Humphrey's side of the bed. Mrs. Humphrey, who in the meanwhile had returned home, shook her head philosophically when apprised of the situation. It is recorded that Mrs. Humphrey's parents had both been put away as confirmed smugglers, a felony against the Crown. The next day, in jail... Nice of you to visit me, Charlie. Yes. What news do you bring? When am I to be released? I, I went to see Sir Roger Firebrace. Wow, is Sir Roger? Dead. 
Tis a pity, too, for he would have gotten your release in an ounce for a few hundred pounds. Don't forget, laddie. I've got your confession. You've got till Sunday. The youngster, however, knew another man of note, Sir Chauncey Fenwick. Sir Chauncey was compassionate and understood the situation exactly, but unfortunately had just had one of his periodic fallings out with the magistrate's wife. But Sir Chauncey did not send the lad away empty-handed. He suggested an old sea dog named Captain Rat, uh, with two T's. What's the file, Mr. Drew? You'll be missing me hook and be scraping my wrist. I'm very sorry, Captain Rat. Mm -hmm. Nervous, beat you? But I, I travelled here to London to talk to you. Yeah, you see, Sir Fenwick sent you to me. Sir Fenwick took five hundred pounds and said he could do nothing with it. You're my last resort, Captain Rat. A wee bit here, Mr. Drew. Aye. Now, what can old Captain Rat do for you? Do you have any influential friends? What be you needing? An alibi. For yourself? For a friend. Aye. Tis always for a friend. What about him? He confesses he killed my father. And he be your friend? By killing my father, he made me rich. I bear him no malice. And for him, you want an alibi. Why? Why not let him rot? Why, sonny? You, you see, I... You kill your daddy, sonny. <laughs> Keep the hook, Captain. You almost stuck me. <laughs> Pardon, young gentleman. An alibi you want, is it? For a friend. Uh, to say what? That my friend is making a mistake. That he is having hallucinations. That he did not kill my father because he was with you the night my father died. And where, Mr. Drew, will that leave you? Well, since one has confessed to the crime, it is doubtful whether I would be charged with it. A sly one. Beant you a sly one, young gentleman. Beant you. Oh. <laughs> I'll travel down to the jail with you and have a talk with your friend. How's that, eh? Very good. I, uh, <clears throat> I'll need 500 pounds for expenses. Oh, I, uh, yes. Now? Yes. Is wasting a Saturday night and all, coming down here to the dungeon speaking to you, Mr. Humphrey. But I don't mind. Are you going to furnish me an alibi, Captain? Uh, this be a strange one. I explained it all to you, Captain. You kill your dad. This one here says he done it. Now the both of you want me to say he couldn't have done it because he was with me. That lad thought it up. He's the bright one, not me. My plan will work. By the time you get Humphrey out of here and the police begin to dig about again, I'll be in Paris. Lost. I will change my name and with my fortune I can... Uh, for your fortune, I will do it. I gave you 500 pounds. Bah, the pittance. Your fortune, Mr. Drew. Except what he's promised to me. What about it, lad? What? No. Taylor! Present talking to both of you. It's Saturday night, Charlie. 
But will you do? It's Saturday night, Charlie. I've got your confession hidden away. And tomorrow's Sunday. What will you do? And they looked at each other there in the dungeon, the jailed and the young visitor. And the question hung there. What would Charlie do? It's Saturday night, and tomorrow is Sunday. What will you do, Charlie? You are listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Hyland. Tomorrow night, hear the premiere performance of 21st Precinct, a new hard-hitting mystery series revealing the inner workings of the world's largest police force. Precinct, produced by CBS radio team that gave you gangbusters, is a program you'll want to listen for every Tuesday night on most of these same stations. Premiere performance tomorrow night on CBS radio. And now, once again, Thomas Highland and the second act of Crime Classics and his report to you on the shrapneled body of Charles Drew Sr. It's a short, dusty road from Long Melford to London. Not only that, but these days it's hard to find. In its day, however, it was remarkable for two things. The brothers Shoes Spooner, Dick and Harry, who embarked on a career of highwomanship on the morn of June 3, 1735, were hung on the eve of that same day from the highest branch of an elm at a fork on Long Melford Road. The other historic feature of Long Melford Road is the fact that on a Sunday morning, a young murderer, Charles Drew Jr., and his lady love rode a coach down its ruts. Oh, he's a ranting, roving lad. He is a brisk and a bonny lad. Be tied what may, I will be wed. And follow the boy with the white cockade. Liz. What is it, dearie? Shut up. Everyone's seen that song, dearie. It's the rage. Please, shut up. Oh, duck, what's the matter? You're the cause of it all. Of what all, duck? My killing my father. You wanted a way to have all his money? I told you a way to do, that's all. Yes. Oh, duck, dearie. You'll see when we get to London what a time I'll show you. Make you forget. Since I've killed him, I've done everything wrong. Will you listen to Liz again? Will you? Surely I'll listen, Poodle. Oh, duck. <laughs> Monkey. Will you listen to Liz? Surely. When we get to London, we change your name, and you forget about Humphrey. But if I, I don't get him out of jail tonight, he'll show the police my confession. But you'll be in London. Start forgetting about him right now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> And so they fled to London town, little knowing that they had made a road famous. 
In London, they located a little-known hideaway called Bonhomme Carter's Thorny Bull Inn on the corner of Asquith and Chiswick. The lad registered under an alias, Thomas Roberts. Liz, however, registered in her own name, Elizabeth Bathall. As this was going on back in Long Melford Jail, where Mr. Humphrey was, there transpired this. In one hour, Varsity, I'm getting out of here. You be a fool. How? A fool. When'd you ever have so much money? What bun are you baking, Varsity? This bun. The lad's giving you money, all that money, and he's good for more. Aye. All we want. Hmm. He's a rich one, that's true. We can get more money before you show his confession. How? You said he fled. His Liz told me they were off to London town. You could write him a letter and say as long as he paid you 20 pounds a day, you'd be willing to stay where you are. 20 pounds a day? That's a robbery. (laughs) (laughs) I will go to London and find Master Drew and present him with the letter. How will you find him? I will ask here and about of him. Hmm. London, eh, Barton? London. What of the children? Mrs. Nickelrod says she will take care of them. And you, alone in London? Uh... (laughs) So Mrs. Humphrey went to London. A few observations about Mrs. Humphrey. Wash away the flour and the excess dough. Put on long sleeves to hide the muscles made prominent from kneading bun dough. Comb the hair, exchange shoes for boots, and Gertrude Humphrey was rather uh, presentable. When she went to London, Mrs. Humphrey did all of these things. Plus making a mental note not to laugh too much. Not only because of the horrible sound she made, but also because of the mischievous twitch it brought on, which she could not control. So... Off she went to this place, to that, to this pub, to that, asking for a Mr. Drew. I should like to comment here that in 1739, the gin was of an excellent Holland distillation. However, its chemistry had a peculiar reaction with Gertrude Humphrey. Though she fought it, and though she laughed not at the most hilarious joke, including the historically famous one about Lady Mumbley and the Troubadour, the gin caused her to twitch mischievously. This attracted to her London dandies, who plied her with more Holland gin, and who promised her help in finding Mr. Drew, and who never did. But Gertrude never lost sight of her mission, and one night in a pub in Covent Garden... Mister! Mister! What's a present, dearie? What now, dearie? I want a gin. Uh, Gin for the lady. What's your name, dearie? Gertie. Gertie? Aye. Here's your gin, Gertie. Pick up. Well now, dearie. Is your name Drew? Is that what you want my name to be? I'm looking for Mr. Drew. Mr. Drew, is there a Mr. Drew? Yeah. Oh, now, Gertie. I'm the one who's bought you the gin. Yes, my name is Drew. <laughs> you ain't the Drew I'm looking for. Oh, now, why do you say that? Uh, here now, lad. I'm the fellow who's bought her the gin. Here's a guinea, my lad. Find another lady who likes gin. Oh, 
Oh, I will, like, Governor. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Gertie. Oh. oh, now, now, why do you weep, pretty one? You're so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Always cry at beautiful things. Gin for the lady. Now, 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 stop that weeping. Ah, here's your gin. I say, mischievous wink you have. Is that truly your name? Truly, Ladybird, it is. Ladybird, Ladybird. And you were looking for me? Ladybird. Well, my name is Drew, and uh, you shouted for Mr. Drew. So beautiful you are. What do you want of me? I've a letter for a man named Drew. Really? Oh, I want you, David. I really do. Then give it to me. You must turn your back now. Right you are. Yeah. <laughs> you want a conniver, you was Drew, Timothy Drew. It's one of those coincidences in history which gave rise to the old saw, truth is stranger than fiction, as they say. And he was a curious man, and a proud man, jealous of his name, Drew. He had heard his name mentioned, and he was forced to find out why. He read the letter then and there. He read it again, a little later, out loud, to the police. And my missus told you have gone to London with Liz Bathall. But, Charlie, my lad, you shall pay me 20 pounds a day, else I will tell that you have murdered your poor daddy. I have your paper, which you confessed you did, right where nobody but me knows where. So when my wife hands you this letter, you better give her money and find a way to keep it, uh, giving it to her, your faithful servant, Mr. Walter Humphrey. Gentlemen, here in London is a man named Charles Drew. He has murdered his father, and he bears the same surname as I. I cannot permit this deed to go unpunished. Even in 1739, the London police were thorough. And, goaded by the enormity of the crime and spurred and accompanied by a man whose name had been besmirched, they combed the alleys, hostelries, pubs, dens. It was late on a moist Thursday morning when Timothy Drew happened into Bonhomme Carter's Thorny Bull Inn on the corner of Asquith and Chiswick. Bonhomme Carter denied the presence of a Mr. Charles Drew, but affirmed that a Liz Bathal was most certainly a guest there. He directed Timothy to Liz's chambers. Open the door. No games, dear. It's too early. Who is it? A representative of the police. Why didn't you say? May I come in? If you be the police, you can do anything. Ain't that so? Thank you. I ain't done nothing. Is your name Elizabeth Bathall? It is. Do you know a man named Charles Drew? What's he look like? I don't know. How can I tell if I know him? Here, here. What sort do you take me for? There's no one in my closet. Ah. What is this young man doing under your bed, madam? Oh, a man? 
Tootsie! Quiet, woman. Is your name Charles Drew? I'm talking to you under the bed there. Is your name Charles yes, Drew? Sir. Come out from under there, sir. That's right, sir. My name is Charles Drew, sir. And did you kill your father? It would be a small life living as I have been. Yes. Yes, I killed my father. the original issue of a gazette dated January 22nd, 1740, from which I'd like to read. The melancholy proof that when a man has abandoned all religious principles and has suffered his depraved appetites and passions to govern his reason was shown yesterday when Charles Drew Jr. was hanged in Long Melford. Since the hanging elm on Long Melford Road had recently been demolished to make a keel for the British Navy, a new gibbet was erected. This gibbet was equipped with a new mechanical device, invented by Mr. Douglas Langford of Eastburn. Mr. Langford is to be congratulated. just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's crime classic. The shrapnel body of Charles Drew Sr., tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was adapted from themes of the period and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. Charles Drew Jr. was played by Terry Kilburn and Liz by Betty Harford. Featured in the cast were Paul Fries, Ben Wright, Irene Tedrow, William Johnstone, and Anthony Ellis. Bob Lamont speaking. And here again is Thomas Highland. Next week, the office directly below that occupied by Oliver Wendell Holmes is the scene of a catastrophe. The place, Harvard Medical School, the time, 1849. My report, on the terrible deed of Dr. Webster. Thank you. Good night. It's big news when a former publisher, soldier, and congressman, the famous son of a famous father, stars in a new radio series. And this Wednesday night, you'll want to listen with all your might when CBS Radio stars Will Rogers, Jr. as Rogers of the Gazette over most of these same stations. Rogers of the Gazette tells the story of a small-town newspaper editor, what he stands for, and also what he refuses to stand for. Premiere performance this Wednesday on CBS Radio. Stay tuned now for Gary Moore with Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. And remember, America now listens to 110 million radio sets and listens most to the CBS radio network.
that's Crime Classics from July 6, 1953, with the shrapnel body of Charles Drew Sr. starring Lou Merrill. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's take a quick break, then it's more on the WGN Radio Theater. Every six days in the U.S., a tow truck operator is hit and killed on our highways. It's up to you to remember the three C's of safety, caution, courtesy, and above all, common sense. Remember, the life you save could be your own. This message, courtesy of Nick's Towing, where they are working hard for the future of our great community. For all of your towing needs, call 847-671-5290 or 630-774-9769. That's Nick's Towing on the air because they care. After the news, it's hour three of the WGN Radio Theater. We'll tune into Broadway Is My Beat, plus The Great Gildersleeve. Stick around. Hour three of the WGN Radio Theater. Lisa and I are here every Saturday night from 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning. We're bringing you eight classic radio shows now each and every week, a new format where we squeeze in more classic radio shows for you. Hope you are enjoying that. In this hour, it's Broadway Is My Beat, Good Detective Adventure from 1953. And then Hal Perry stars as the great Gildersleeve, my brother's least favorite radio show. But I love the great Gildersleeve. Right, well, that makes sense because he doesn't like it. You love it. That's how (laughs) brothers are. That's true. (laughs) Sibling rivalry there. But I got to tell you, Lisa, I love... This face mask you gave me. And isn't it a weird time wow. that you would ever say something like that? Yeah, I but love your face mask. You know mask. what? It's it's cool because it's like all black. It's very cool. And it's washable. And I can reuse this face mask. Where did you get this? Well, I washed it and I dried it for you. All on delicate, of course, because I know how Thank delicate you, you are. <laughs> uh, yeah. But these masks are made with two layers of stretch cotton fabric. And they have a fused lining in the center for extra protection, which has been approved by the mayor of Los Angeles. I guess there are some guidelines there. This is all from Veronica M. Clothing. And I was doing some research into some clothing, you know, like a few extra nice tops for all my sure. Zoom and You're very Skype fashionable. Meetings. I like to be fashion forward. And I found these masks. And um, not only are they fashionable, they have camouflage and striped and floral and prints and solids, whatever you Ooh, want. I want a camouflage one too. Mm, Can you I get me one? I'm save that for Can myself. Can you get me one? Come Maybe on, Maybe if I work really hard, I could I'll bet you one. Mike would want a camouflage <laughs> one too. Would. They're pretty darn cool. But what is so great about this company is Veronica. And I've had the chance to talk with her. This has been a labor of love for her, this company. It's in LA, it's been manu- all of these clothing and masks have been manufactured in LA since day one. She actually started cutting and sewing in her garage. So truly, she is passionate about her business, and um, she shifted her focus to making masks with all of the fabrics and the machinery that she has. So she was able to allow her employees to continue working, and she does a wonderful job. She makes adult and kid size masks. And I really appreciate how she has these humble beginnings and she's turned her lifelong passion.
passion into a wonderful business. Well, not only are they really, really excellent masks and work great, are reusable and all that, but they're very inexpensive. Five masks, only $35. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's a great, great deal. And she's producing 7,000 masks per week. She's she's seriously amazing. She personally is trimming and packaging and shipping these masks out. I'm going to post some photos on all of our social media. You can check out my family wearing them, the WGN team wearing them, and I'm also going to post some behind-the-scenes photos of what's going on with her masks and her clothing industry. I love the special tops. I'm wearing them for my Zoom meetings, my Skype meetings, and some of the leisure and casual wear. So how do people find out more about Veronica M. Clothing? So go to her website. It's Veronica M. Dot shop, V-E-R-O-N-I-C-A-M dot shop. Also, you can follow her on Instagram at Veronica M. Clothing. Wow, very cool. And uh, yeah, take a picture of me wearing this. Huh? I will. So excited to be working with Veronica. Way to go, Veronica. We love it. All right, when we come back from the break, it's Broadway is my beat, plus the great Gildersleeve. Stick around. Hour three of the WGN Radio Theater. Want to remind everyone listening that we have a classic radio club. Now, don't you want to join a club if you love the subject matter? I love being in the club. Yeah, classic radio is what our classic radio club is all about. If you join, you will receive 10 of the greatest classic radio shows sent to you each and every month via digital download or on five CDs in a collector case. Just go to our website, ClassicRadioClub.com. You'll learn all about it. It's a very, very cool club to join, and you could cancel at any time. Check it out, ClassicRadioClub.com. All right, Lisa, time now for Broadway Is My Beat. This was a terrific detective series. Came to radio in 1949. It starred Larry Thor as New York Times Square detective Danny Clover. Each episode opened to the theme, I'll Take Manhattan. Clover worked homicide from Times Square to Columbus Circle, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Charles Calvert played played Sergeant Gino Tartaglia, and Jack Crucian was Sergeant Mugovan. This was a really, really cool series, Lisa. Let's go back to May 30th, 1953, for the Ruth Shea case. This stars Larry Thor. Here's Broadway Is My Beat. Broadway's My Beat, from Times Square to Columbus Circle, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway's My Beat, with Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover. It comes to every street, and it comes to Broadway, the single instant when summer nighttime hits the skids when tomorrow starts coming in. It's the instant when the shadows start to stretch and the first neon is turned off and a puff of breeze up from the river blows the warmth away. Somebody pays a check and the party breaks up. Somebody yawns, somebody goes home. It's the time of the delicatessen store where the toast is drunk with cream soda and go home with the newspapers. And it's come to Broadway. Another day's dying. 
And where I was, the night returns to the river, causes phenomena such as a thousand curves of moon reflected in dark water and drifting to the sea, such as brief wild sob of a ship suddenly landlocked, such as death sprawled beside it. A couple of kids walking past here stumbled, Danny saw the woman dead, called it in. Any identification, Mugwin? A purse, a wallet, haven't had a chance to look. Here. I guess you got a yacht that gives you the privilege. Huh? That yacht out there, look at him. We'll make him out. <sighs> what am I bitter about? Somebody buy me a small yacht, I'd dance, blow the whistle, and... Yeah, just like that, I... Oh, for now, just hold the flash over this way, huh, Mugovan? Yeah. Ruth Shea, 1212 West 65th. In case of accident, notify Robert Shea, relation husband. Height, 5 feet 4 inches, weight 160. Bet this woman weighs more than that now, Danny. Closer to 250, I'll bet. No money in the wallet. Robbery, huh? Probably. Nothing else in this purse except a couple of candy bars. I'd say she was walking or was driven down here and... That's a real happy sound. Yeah. You know something? What? I never knew what I wanted out of life. Now I know. This is a night to remember, Danny. And to headquarters now to file a report, to detail the violence, to wait. Because there are entries to be made in blank spaces provided for the purpose... Information not yet available. Information now being worked on in official and prescribed tempo, which may take an hour, two, maybe more, which will then be tendered to the interested party. Wait. And on the fringe of dawn, the tiptoe entrance of that filler-in of blank spaces, Sergeant Gino Tartaglia. Good morning, Danny. Well, you don't have to whisper, Gino. It's Forgive a... me. Unaccustomed as I am to night duty, it follows that I would perhaps not be up in the etiquette for the occasion. So kill me. It's just that you don't need to whisper, Gino. You're not... If for various reasons I need to approach Mrs. T at four of a morning, I whisper. Gino... If one of my tataglia yells out at four in the morning, Water, I need glass of water, I whisper back, Get it yourself, honey. Gino, just give it to me. How the information you have... Goes without saying... Uh, report still warm from the hands of the medical examiner, Dr. Sinsky, concerning the deceased Ruth Shea as follows. Weight of victim, 242 pounds and odd ounces. 242 pounds in a woman? This is Just go on, huh, Jim? <clears throat> Approximate age of Ruth Shea deceased, age 27. Condition of Ruth Shea at time of decease, body full of many bullet wounds. The gun that killed was emptied into her, which leads Dr. Sinsky to the conclusion that... That what? That Ruth Shea was murdered in passion, in fury, to quote the good doctor, and for no motives of robbery or etc. Also, Danny, not on the report... What? That the husband of Ruth Shea, having been notified, is right now waiting outside the morgue. Why didn't you tell me, Gino? Instead... He'll wait, Danny. He'll wait. What else is a husband in his condition to do? Besides, he's been there all... The walk now. Route channeled through plaster walls, bulletin boards, stressing courtesy and alertness, and doorways to squad rooms, detention rooms, and other doorways. Route to the morgue. The final long corridor with the painted red arrows and discreet printing, the permanent beads of sweat on the wall. In the last turn, the man waiting in front of the brown doors. Are you Mr. Clover? The impeccable man, the man in shades of gray, the natty man who had brought a carved malacca cane to the enormous cold room, who held a Hamburg between you and him like a shield. They told me to wait here for you. I'm Mr. Shea, Robert Shea. Then you know it's pretty certain your wife might be here in the morgue, Mr. Shea. I knew she was missing. 
Has been for some hours. Let's go in. You say your wife has just been missing for hours. Since midnight, I'd say. Please. What? Uh, before I do, before I tell you, before I recite small things as concerns Ruth and myself, the wherefores and so on, let's be sure. All right. Well? Why is she dead, Mr. Clover? She's been shot. Someone empty. I mean, why is she dead? This is your wife. Why is she dead? Let's get out of here, Mr. Chairman. Please tell me why. All of a sudden now, Ruth is dead and shot and in this place. I want to know. Maybe robbery, maybe... All right. I'll accept that. Sit down, Mr. Shea. Can I get you something? What did you have in mind that you can get me? Mr. Clover. Water, cigarette, that's all. And the concerned look you're offering up right now? I analyzed that look correctly, didn't I? Partly. Quizzical? That's right. I want you to tell me about your wife's being missing, the, the small things you mentioned. At midnight, about then we retired. I kissed my wife goodnight. She went to her bedroom. I to mine. Go on. I couldn't sleep. I thought to listen to some music. My bed radio is... There's a little screw on the tuner. It's out of order. I thought to go into Ruth's room quietly and take her radio. I see now how I knew. This ever happened before, Mr. Shea? Two or three times. Oh? But each time I found Ruth on the back porch. Won't believe it. Tell me. Reading poetry by flashlight. Listen, Mr. Clover. Yes? First of all, you must concern yourself with me. I know that, whether I killed my wife. I didn't. I... I worshipped her. You'll find that out. All right. You can see how wonderful she was. Poetry by flashlight. I worshipped her. You'll find out that I did. You'll see. Now I'd like to be alone. Morning, Danny. Hi. Sleep good? Uh huh? That's good. See the morning paper? No. You don't look at the morning paper, Danny. How are you going to know what's happened during the night to our civilization? Huh? Nugget, so help me. That's you... why I brought one with me. Already folded neatly to page 10. Behind the sports section and what the Giants went and did again. Here, the third column. Picture of a young woman. Want to look at it, Danny? Sure you do. Look. Very beautiful. Very. Very. <laughs> no, no, don't read it, Danny. Let me lay it out personally. That beautiful woman in harem costume, that ravishing thing, that doll. Oh, that's got heartbreak in it, the way her mouth curves. That's Ruth Shea. The same Ruth Shea we found shot up near the river. I don't... Sure you don't believe it, neither do I. But that's her, all right. Picture taken two years ago at a society fair with tents on Long Island. <laughs> the beautiful, elegant Ruth Shea, they say about her. Just that long ago, I she's... checked with the newspaper. One of their boys grabbed the picture two years ago. August 1951. I talked to him personally. All right, Muggerman, she was beautiful, so what is it... Uh... What does it prove? <laughs> How would I know? How would I know what happens to a woman who looks like that and then ends up as a 250-pound corpse? How would I... What do you want, Tartaglia? Uh, what do you want, Sergeant? My mission is to Lieutenant Clover, if you don't mind, Detective What is Muggerman. it, Gino? Just came a phone call to this department from a Miss Dinah Martin. Well? A Miss Dinah Martin who politely informed me she was an intimate friend of the late Ruth Shea. 
that she saw Ruth no less than day before yesterday, and also if we will kindly send someone to her place, she will be happy to chat about who killed her dear friend Ruth. Her also, address, Tartagli, you get it? Also, Danny, the address of Miss Dinah Martin, which I present to you for your personal consideration. Thanks, Gino. You did good. Thank you, Danny. And before you mention the squad car, Detective Mugovan, it has been ordered and is awaiting your pleasure. That is all. It says over the doorbell, Dinah Martin, just like... You want to ring the bell, Mugovan? Maybe Dinah changed her mind. Try the door, huh? Wouldn't live without it. We go in, Danny? Sure we do. Danny? And the thing that stopped him. Girl seated on the floor, head twisted, leaning up against edge of bed. Arms unbent, curved inward, fingers taut in attitude of distorted dance. Mouth in silent, infinite scream. Eyes open, staring. Throat. Bruises, Danny. She's been strangled. Girl strangled. In attitude of doll. Attitude of death. Final pose of murder. You are listening to Broadway's My Beat, written by Morton Fine and David Friedkin, and starring Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover. Noon time of May on Broadway. Also the time of the excursion uptown to place wreath on stone or on wood. And the gust of memory, memory... Knelt at, memory wept for. Then back to the street, back to Broadway, to observe the dying of May, to stand on the street corner, nibble the hot pastrami, look into the future, when again it will be the time of youth, the two-week romp in the Catskills, the burial in the sand at Far Rockaway, ecstasy on the high curve of the roller coaster at Coney, and on the moon-burned grass of Public Park, the girl to make talk to, dream talk, crazy talk, summertime talk, when May dies, it'll happen. And where I was, in Detective Mugovan, room of the strangled girl. Room where girl had slept and awakened. Room now subject to more official, more prescribed routines. To be walked by strangers. To be searched. There's little letters here, Danny, all addressed to Miss Dinah Martin. Huh? Those book plates you found going through her books. Dinah Martin, huh? Yeah. Other things, shoes, dresses, lingerie. Looks like they go good with her size, color, material. Yeah. Pretty positive identification, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I do, Mugovan. When she called in, she said she knew about Ruth Shea's dying, said she wanted to talk to somebody about Yeah, it. she did. Now we won't know. She's got nobody to talk you to. You want to look in the other rooms, Mugovan? I'll do that. Hey, Danny, look. Yeah, look at this, this framed photograph. I'll see it. She was younger then. 
Sure younger, a kid freshly graduated from high school. And the other kids with her. Two girls in white graduation gowns. A boy in blue coat, white flannel pants. Diplomas crossed like swords. This older gentleman with the rimless glasses. Autographed to Dinah. This one next to her, Ruth Shea. A beauty even when she was a kid, huh, Dad? Look how This her... one, Mary Greer. The boy, Steve Herndon. This inscription under the picture of the older man. Yeah, to the bright stars, may fortune continue smiling. Signed, John B.R. Uh, Brewster. Thanks. Yeah, Brewster. Oh, don't mention it. Oh, don't ask me, Danny. I'll stay and take over. And to Officer Sinker, the man assigned to such things, show him the picture, point out the name, and wait five minutes. Picture taken in front of North Park High School on 95th. And Mr. Brewster, that would be Mr. John Brewster, principal. So the squad car and early afternoon ride uptown. And on the playing fields of North Park High, the young men officially required to wear underwear between the hours of one and two on this day. And the young ladies looking plucky in black bloomers and preparing their ship for the great sea of life by batting a hockey ball up and down. Enter the red brick building. Ask of a giggler where the principal's office is, and her girlfriend has to answer for her. Walk the hall, hallowed by large glass case with only three athletic trophies in it, two won by girls' teams, and an office, and ask for and be received by Mr. Brewster. It's about Ruth Shea, isn't it? And about another woman, uh, Dinah Martin. Dinah? What's happened to her? Dead. Oh, surely now we you We found be... this uh, picture in her room, Mr. Brewster, only a short time ago. Uh, would you look at it, please? Uh, of course. Dinah, Ruth, Mary Greer, Steve Herndon, and myself. Ah, but uh, you know that, the autograph... Five people on a photograph. Two murdered within a day of each other. Can you give me any idea of... Uh... Well, these four students, my scholarship students of that year, ten years ago, I'd say, about that. We had our pictures taken together, an annual thing. I see. Each one a scholarship to college. Had you seen Ruth? I mean... When she was dead. The black hair. What? I, I marveled as black It was as... red, Mr. Brewster, a kind of red. Ruth was so beautiful... I remember how I would stand by that window and watch as she... Time does pass, doesn't it? Yes. It's a pity she didn't go to college. She had a fine mind. Uh, Ruth, didn't you know, she married after graduation. Why she married when she could have had an education... Mr. Brewster. Uh, what? Oh, yes. Had you seen her recently? Not since I handed her her diploma. But I got word from her uh, about her. From time to time. Oh? Uh, coincidence, really. What is it? I happened into Dinah Martin six months ago. Uh, eight. No, well, it's not see. important how long ago. Just tell me. The... She said she'd seen Ruth often. That Ruth was fat and a horror as a person. A crier, twister of handkerchief, an eaten woman. You know how they are. Go on. That's all she said. She was in a hurry. And now she's dead. Strangled to death. Well, that's all she said. She was in a hurry. You know where I can find this other boy and girl in the picture? Oh, my secretary should be able to tell you. We send out cards periodically to see what happened to our people. She should know. Things really do, don't they, Mr. Clover? They really change.
don't mind if I let the record play through whatever we have to talk about, will you, Mr. Clover? Well, not if you... Uh... I don't mind it. Why should you? Look, Miss Greer... If not that record, then the radio. Because it helps me when I need to think. When I have to study, when... You're still a student, Miss Greer? Postgraduate work at Columbia. I'm on my doctorate in Oriental Philosophies. Before that, it was medieval tapestries and their profundities. Before that... Miss Greer... It... I won a scholarship in high school, you know. Me and Ruth and... Dinah and Steve. Uh, Mr. Brewster told me. Miss Greer, I want And to... I took the gentle Mr. Brewster's gentle words to heart. And I never stopped studying. And I never stopped learning. And I know absolutely nothing. Positively. May I see that photograph again, please? Of course. This one is dead? And this one is dead. The poor, poor young things. That's the emotion their dying brings to you, Miss Greer? Precisely the emotion. I have no compassion for them, dead or alive. Why not? Good question. Very good question. Well, just tell me, Miss Greer. Dinah. Dinah Martin, I can dispose of in very few words. There was nothing about her to interest me. Shallow girl with brain and soul to match. She fooled others. Mr. Brewster, but not me. And Ruth Shea. A very great beauty in her youth. Once the boys' soccer team carried her around the campus on their shoulders... She was masked, so they built a bonfire and... That's why you don't care she's dead. Could be. Could be one of the reasons. What others? You take a beautiful girl like Ruth. And circumstances are such that you must go to high school with raving beauty. Any questions? Go on. And you, a student and girl, must observe what Ruth does to boys. And later to men. Then you must stand by and watch as she marries... A wonderful man, a handsome man, an impeccable man. Still no questions? Look, Miss Greer, just... And this man takes this Ruth for better or for worse, and builds pedestals for her beauty, where he may worship and not let her lift a finger to anything and not demand anything of her. And years later you see this girl, this beauty, this owner of everything in the world, and... And... And what? And she's still beautiful at this dissatisfied and edgy and making this slow but sure change into a complete horror. When a man has loved her like that, has married her, has... You still wonder, Mr. Clover, why no compassion for Ruth alive or dead? No. I didn't take you for a fool. Goodbye, Mr. Clover. How did you find me, Mr. Clover? I got your home address from your high school. I phoned your house. Your wife told me where to find you. She say I'd be up to my elbows and shoulder pads? Yes, yeah, she did. It's a joke for people who ask where I am during the day. The things those people are making, shoulder pads for ladies' garments. Eh, this is a shoulder pad. Oh? Huh? Very interesting. Interesting? The heat done something Look, to you? Uh, Look, okay. Mr. Herndon. Okay. You said it's about Dinah and Ruthie when you come in. That's right. Dinah went out of town to college, if I remember correctly. Me, I stayed here. Had you seen her recently? No. No. How about Ruth? In high school, I practically fainted for just one touch of a loose-leaf book. Nuts about her. Yeah, I understand she used to be a very beautiful girl. You remember Dolores Costello in the movies? Only with cold black hair. Wistful, but with uh, much of mystery. 
The black hair did it for me. Black hair. Last time I saw it was platinum. How long ago was this? Well, I saw her at a party a couple of years ago. How did she look? Started to get a little heavy, I thought. Figured it was from the booze. Oh? Yeah, she was real loaded. Hey, listen. Uh-huh. You already talked to my wife on the phone, haven't you? There's no need to talk to her again, is there? I doubt it. Why? Uh... <laughs> my wife always wondered where I disappeared to for an hour. That party two years ago. I danced Ruth out on the balcony. Ruth was loaded. You remember I told you that? That's right. You did. Uh... And she hated him. But she wouldn't let me kiss her. Hated her husband, you mean? Yeah, that's right. She was talking divorce two years ago. Did you know that? She said he wouldn't give her one. What else did she say? Oh, she said she'd get even with him, you know. Why did she hate him, Mr. Hernan? Did she tell you that? Yeah, kind of. Said she wanted to get off that pedestal. She said he wouldn't let her really be a wife. He would do everything for her. I'm tired of being told she was so beautiful and she mustn't do this or do the. Look, Miss Stutman on the basting machine has got her hand raised. She's a new girl. Will you pardon me, Mr. Clover? Yes? Hello, Mr. Shea. You uh, remember me, don't you? Yes. Now, this is Detective Muggerman. Pleased to meet you. Well, let's go inside. I was just going... Thank you very much. We will. You know why we came to see you, Mr. Shea? Additional information? Whatever it is, I'll be glad. To answer your question. Question? The one you asked me in the morgue. Oh. Well... Well, what? You mean as to why it happened to Ruth? Why she was killed? I know the answer. Well, let's see if it jives with ours. Mr. Clover himself suggested it. Robbery. Ruth was foolish enough, sentimental enough to take a walk late at night by the river. She left herself open for that sort of thing. It's not an extraordinary happening in the Mr. city that, that a woman lonely on a, a lonely stretch of pavement. Ruth was well-dressed, as you know. Ruth. To some people, there was a prettiness in her face. Right, cut it out, Mr. Shea. It's possible that she attracted... Anyhow, you know as well as I do, she had no money with her. A woman of her class to have no money. Therefore, at points, I've come to the conclusion that it was murder provoked Danny. But... Leave him alone. Well, doesn't that make sense? I've asked myself over and over. Over and over. What about the seven bullets? What? Whoever shot your wife emptied his gun into her. Her murderer was provoked. Down at headquarters, we've got it tabbed as a crime of passion. What do you mean? Love, hate, emotion, you know... Bright man like you. A man shoots a woman, she drops. He stands over, he keeps shooting. You know, passion. Is that the right word? Danny. Yeah. Uh, you can have your opinion, of course, but certainly I... Certainly you what? Are you hinting that my wife had a clandestine meeting? That there was another man? Mr. Shea. Well, is that what you're hinting? We found out your wife was a very great beauty. A long time ago. There was still a prettiness in her face. Some two years was... ago, the papers ran a picture of her in a harem costume. Slender, graceful. You remember? Yes. Her black hair. Yes. Then she died at platinum. How'd she look? Cheap. On her. And she was starting to put on weight. Then she dyed her hair again. Uh, what would you say that color was, Danny? I don't know. Orange. She said red, but something happened. And getting sloppier. A beautiful woman like From that. the time she was 16, I loved her. 16 and lovely. And I married her. Mr. Shea. So lovely and young and slender. What happened, Mr. Shea? What happened? I don't know. I really don't know. I know. She wanted a divorce, didn't she? 
To lose a beautiful thing like Ruth, I'd have to be out of my mind. You understand why she wanted a divorce, Mr. Shea? She said... She you said, wouldn't let her be a wife, is that what she said? I worshipped her. I worshipped the ground she walked Because on. she was beautiful and you loved her. Yes, 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 yes. And she destroyed the woman you loved. Herself. You see what she did? In two years before my eyes, she became a horror, a glutton, everything I detest. So you killed her? Yes. And killed Dinah Martin? I went to see her because I knew she understood what happened. She opened the door for me and saw it was me and started to scream. I... Strangled her. Let's go, Mr. Shea. You should have seen her, my wife, how beautiful she was, woman I loved. And Ruth killed her, and there was another person living in her place, coarse, orange hair, and what she had become. I'm ready. It's the street of the hunter, this Broadway, of the smile that's dropped at the tip of the hat, and lights flung from windows out of doorways, and you walk a pavement spangled with a thousand colors, but between the light, that's where the darkness is. It's Broadway, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway. My beat. Broadway's My Beat stars Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover, with Charles Calvert as Tartaglia and Jack Crucian as Mugovan. The program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis with musical score composed and conducted by Alexander Courage. In tonight's story, Lamont Johnson was heard as Robert. Featured in the cast were Truda Marson, Lawrence Dobkin, and Steve Roberts. Bill Anders speaking. Remember, the stars still shine in the Lux Summer Theater Monday nights on the CBS Radio Network.
that's Broadway Is My Beat from May 30th, 1953, with a Ruth Shea case starring Larry Thor, as heard on CBS. It's time now for the first half of The Great Gildersleeve. This was a terrific comedy series. Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve was a character first introduced on Fibber McGee and Molly. Hal Perry played that role. And in August of 1941, it spun off into its own regular radio series called The Great Gildersleeve, sponsored by Kraft. In fact, that was the first time any show spun out of another program, uh, made history. Hal Perry, as Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve, moved from Wistful Vista to Summerfield. He became the town water commissioner and the town's most eligible bachelor. He began raising his orphaned niece, Marjorie, and nephew, Leroy, and he had a cook by the name of Bertie. Now, this uh, radio show lasted all the way until 1957, and in uh, 1955 made a transition to television. Hal Perry now stars in The Duel from March 17, 1948. Here's the first half of The Great Gildersleeve. The Kraft Foods Company presents Harold Perry as the Great Gildersleeve. (laughs) Well, it's almost midnight in the little town of Summerfield. The streets are quiet and deserted, except for one lone figure. It's our pudgy friend, the Great Gildersleeve, wending his way home after an evening of fun and song with the Jolly Boys. Uh, I had a real nice time tonight. Jolly Boys are a swell bunch of fellas, all right. Even Judge Hooker isn't so bad. It's not his fault he's such a big bag of wind. <sighs> nice to be getting home, though. Little bed's gonna feel much. Well, there's a lamp on in our living room. Wonder who's up at this hour. Playing the radio so late. Marjorie! Hello, Anki. What are you doing up so late? Do you realize it's almost midnight? It is? Yes, it is. Now, get right up to bed, young lady, immediately. You should have been asleep hours. Marjorie? Yes? Have you been crying? What's the matter, my dear? Nothing, Hunky. It's just that I'm so happy, and the music's so beautiful. Yeah, well, it's late, my dear, and you have to go to school tomorrow. I'm afraid we'll just have to turn the radio off now. Oh, Anki. I'm sorry, Marjorie, but a girl your age should have eight hours sleep every night. Anki. Yes? Please sit down for a minute. I want to talk to you. Now, Marjorie, we can talk in the morning. You really should... Please, Uncle Mort. Well, all right, my dear. Now. (laughs) Anki, did you ever have the feeling that you were just starting to live for the first time? That suddenly everything in the world had become beautiful and everywhere you went you heard violins? Violins? Well, no, not exactly. It's a wonderful feeling. Sometimes you're happy. Uh Uh-huh. Sometimes you're sad. Oh. But even when you're sad, you're really happy. Do you understand what I mean? Uh, oh, sure, of course. <sighs> uh, Marjorie, who have you got a crush on this time? It's not a crush, Uncle. I'm really in love. Oh, sure. Who is it? That Wally Hoff boy? Wally Hoff, that callow youth. <laughs> I'm in love with someone who's sophisticated, charming, well-groomed. Well-groomed? Couldn't be Wally Hoff. His shirt tail's always hanging out. <laughs> well, what boy is it? He's not a boy. He's a man. What? Who is he? Our new French teacher. Oh, my goodness, Marjorie. Aren't you being a little silly, a crush on a teacher? 
Andre is a man I can look up to. Andre? That's his name, Andre Marcel. Marcel? Sounds like a French barber. <laughs> He's wonderful. Now, Marjorie, this whole thing is ridiculous. A young girl like you. I'm 17. That's too young to be falling in love with some middle-aged school teacher. What if he is 27? I love him. <laughs> now, Marjorie, let's be sensible. If you must fall in love, why don't you pick out a boy your own age? How about Ben? You used to like him. Oh, Ben, sweet. But when he walks in a room, he just doesn't make bells ring. Bells ring? <laughs> what do you want, a good humor man? You just don't understand, Unky. I'm not a child anymore. I'm a woman. And I'll love Andre Marcel until the end of time. You'll do no such thing. <laughs> I realize, Uncle Mort, you were only trying to do your duty. Marjorie? But I must tell you that nothing you can say or do will make any difference. I love Andre, and, well, I'm sure that he'll love me one day. If you don't stop carrying on this way, I'll see that you drop out of that French class and take Spanish. I won't take Spanish. You will. I won't. Young lady, you go to bed. I won't take Spanish. I won't. Oh, my goodness. Why couldn't she have a woman French teacher? Andre Marcel. <laughs> with you. Why, you've been sitting here all evening and you've hardly said boo. I'm sorry, Adeline. Boo. <laughs> Not very flattering to a girl when a gentleman caller doesn't pay her any mind. Adeline, I have a problem. You do? Now you tell Adeline what's putting those furrows in your little old forehead. Well, it's Marjorie. What's the trouble with her? She's in love again. My goodness, is that all? She's in love with one of her teachers at the high school. Well, now, I wouldn't worry. Every schoolgirl goes through that. I know I did. Why, I fell madly in love with my history teacher just because he had a cute little mustache. <laughs> I remember my history teacher, Miss Simpson. She had a mustache, too, but I didn't fall in love with her. Now, I'm sure that Marty will get over it. I don't know if she will or not. I've never seen her take it like this before. Last night, she didn't sleep. Today, she just picked at her food. Walked around the house like a zombie. Well, that's just the way I was, but I got over it. You did? Yes, a young fellow my own age came along, Stonewall Holloway. And I soon forgot all about that history teacher. Youth called to youth, and I answered. Hmm. Isn't there any young blade here that Marjorie might be interested in? Well, there's Ben. He's a boy that runs a filling station. Marjorie's been falling in and out of love with him since she was 12. I think he's getting a little discouraged. Well, maybe if you got them together again, they might rekindle the flame. Well, I... I didn't think I could care for Stonewall either, but he carried me away like a tidal wave. Oh, well, Ben's no tidal wave, but... <laughs> could ask him over, I guess. Certainly wouldn't do any harm. And Throckmorton, uh, maybe there's another reason Marjorie's in love. What's that? It's spring. Huh? In the spring, a young girl's fancy lightly turns to love. Yeah. That goes for older girls, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spring's the time for romance. That's when sweethearts think of getting engaged, then getting married. Uh, well, thanks for the advice about Marjorie. You've been very helpful. Uh, good night. <laughs> well, I declare. Wonder why he left in such a hurry. Thank you.
you ought to leave. Be right with you. Yeah, just act kind of casual, like I just happened to drop in. <laughs> Well, good morning, Mr. Gildersleeve. Good morning, Ben. Just came in for some gas. All right. That's the reason I came in. Need gas. <laughs> sure. How many? Uh, well, just a minute. I'll check the gauge. Uh, it's funny. Seems to be full. <laughs> Guess I don't need any. Oh. Well, okay. See you next time. Yeah. Maybe you can wipe my windshield if it isn't too much trouble. Oh, I'll be glad to. And Ben... We haven't seen much of you lately. Uh, why don't you drop over sometime? Thanks, Mr. Gillisleeve. I will sometime. Here, that's, that's pretty clean now. Want me to wipe the inside, too? Oh, yeah, yeah. Very good idea. Um, why don't you come over and see us real soon, Ben? Well, I... Of course, I don't want to rush you, but how about tonight? Gosh, I don't know. I was going to go bowling tonight. I don't want to rush you, Ben, but we'd sure like to see you. Everybody's been asking me what became of Ben. The whole family... Bertie, Leroy, and Marjorie. Marjorie? Asked about me? She was talking about you just the other night. She was? Yeah. Marjorie thinks a lot of you, Ben. Well, I don't know. She didn't act much like it last time I was over. Huh? Well, all women are a little flighty, but we understand them, don't we, my boy? Well, I'm not sure I do. <laughs> <laughs> I know Marjorie will be glad to see you, Ben. Well, I'm not so sure. After what she said the last time I saw her. Huh? What'd she say to you? Drop dead. <laughs> oh, well, she, she was only kidding. Oh, I don't know. She said it twice. <laughs> a girl talks like that to a fellow Ben, it shows she's really interested in him. It does? Sure. She wasn't interested, she wouldn't care if you dropped dead or not. <laughs> Gee, I never thought of it that way. I speak from long experience, Ben. When women get mad at you, that's a good sign. It shows they really care. Well, if that's the case, Margie must be crazy about me. Sure. Well, what do you say, Ben? Well, I'll take a chance, I guess. That's the spirit. Goodbye, Ben. See you tonight. It's nice spending an evening at home, isn't it, children? Yeah, it's all right. Don't you think it's nice, Marjorie? Marjorie. What? Oh, yes. What are you doing way over there in the corner? Just thinking. I know. I bet she's thinking about that French guy, Monsieur Marcel. You shut up. <laughs> Bonjour, mademoiselle. Oui, oui. <laughs> Leroy, that'll do. Uh, you staying home tonight, Marjorie? I guess so. Well, uh, that's good. Why? Why? Uh, oh, no particular reason. Just nice to have you here, that's all. Uncle Mort, what are you... Bell. Well, I wonder who that is. I'll get it! No, I'll get it, Bertie. Can't imagine who it is. Well, good evening, Mr. Gildersleeve. Well, what a surprise. It's Ben. What? Come on in, Ben. Marjorie, it's Ben. Hi, Ben. Hello, Leroy. Hello, Marge. Hello. Well, Ben, glad you happened to drop by. Uh, but this morning... Yeah, sit down, Ben. <laughs> That's the first half of The Great Gildersleeve from March 17, 1948, with a duel starring Hal Perry. We'll have more after these words.
Please salute our brave men and women fighting overseas for their support of the USA. This salute, courtesy of a concerned citizen, John Wadzita, serving the U.S. Postal Service for over 38 years. John Wadzita is on the air saluting our troops. Right after the news, we will have the conclusion to The Great Gildersleeve. Plus, we'll tune into The Cisco Kid from 1957. That's all coming your way right after the news.